And the rest of us are going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Romans 8. At the end of our service today, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. We'll be having communion together. And so I want to tell you that now so you might be even preparing as you listen to God's Word and thinking and you're thinking about Christ, that we are going to obey Him and what He calls us to do, and even eating bread and drinking wine, remembering His perfect sacrifice on our behalf as an act of worship. And so be thinking of that. Pray with me one more time before we study God's Word together. God, God, we would ask that You would open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from Your law, just as the psalmist said. Lord, may we see You as You truly are, and may we be struck by Your greatness in Your love, in Your compassion, in Your holiness, in Your great provision for us in providing a Savior who is altogether lovely, Jesus Christ Himself, in His name. We pray. Amen. It was Benjamin Franklin who said there are two sure things in life. Death and taxes. And Benjamin Franklin was half right. Death is sure, but some people don't pay their taxes. Death is sure. I'd like to revise his statement. Two sure things in life. Death And suffering, those are two sure things in this life. Jesus Himself did not say, I promise you health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. In fact, quoting Jesus, Jesus said to His own followers, in this life you will have trouble. Now thankfully, that's not all we hear from Jesus Thankfully, that's not all we hear from the Bible, that you are going to die. It's appointed for a person to die once, and then comes judgment. In this life, you'll have trouble. I'm so glad that's not all we hear in the Bible. But nevertheless, we do hear it. It is true. As we live our lives, we suffer. And then, looming in the background, always there, maybe pushed to the back of our minds, but always there, looming in the background is, the reality that one day we're going to breathe our last breath. And with that breath that you just breathed, you're one breath closer. So am I. Thankfully, to get us through these times and to give us perspective and to see God's great love, we have Romans 8. Romans 8 is about suffering, no doubt, but it's not only about suffering. It's also about the great hope that we can have because of Christ and because of salvation in Christ. And it all comes to a a high point. It comes to a crescendo of promises in Romans 8.28. I'm so thankful we have this promise in addition to the others. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Ah, It's unmatched. It's great. It's a great promise that we as believers cherish and we cling to. And and I've been trying to do my best to remind you that that promise comes in the context of Romans 8, which is about suffering, which is about the reality that we live in a broken world, we live broken lives, even those of us who are Christians. 
And so we can, we can take great comfort in this, this divine promise that all things are working together, even the bad things, because God loves us ultimately and then we love Him in response and we can have great confidence in this. But we're going a step further because the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, goes a step further. And what he does is give us, he gives us more of the depth. And if you will, he answers the question, how could this be true? How can God make that grandiose of a promise? How could he say that? Now, I would be willing to believe it if, that, if that's where Romans 8 stopped. But it doesn't. He wants us to see the depth behind verse 28 by giving us 29 and 30. Let's go ahead and look. In 29 it says, For those whom He foreknew... He's explaining 28 really is what He's doing. That's why it starts with four. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30 then says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. All of a sudden, we get to see the depth underneath and the depth behind this great promise. How could God say this? How can this promise be true that everything that happens in your life as a believer, even the bad things, are somehow being worked together for your good? To answer the question, it's Romans 8, 29, and 30. That's how. Because God has a great plan. He has a great plan that is an unbreakable plan. In fact, so many Bible teachers before me, I'm just borrowing from them, have said this is God's unbreakable chain of salvation. So we've been looking at the five links in this unbreakable chain of salvation. A couple of weeks ago, we, we started looking at this and we saw that the first link in this unbreakable chain is foreknew. For those whom He foreknew that God placed His affection, because it's a word for affection, on individuals. And I won't re-preach the sermon. You can... Listen to it on iTunes or somewhere else. But the idea is when, when this word is used here, it's in reference to people. God didn't foresee events. He foreknew. A synonym would be He foreloved and it's people. He set His affection on individuals. And then we move on to the second link in the chain. Predestined. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And so we have those two realities connected. I remind you that in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In love He predestined us. This is a great truth. This is a wonderful truth. This is what gets us through the suffering times. It's not meant to be a church splitter. It's not meant to be the, the object of our division. This is a great reality. It's tied to, to how it can be that all things work together for our good. It's because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And notice, it's not just predestined uh, in general, it's to be conformed to the image of His Son, to make us like Christ, in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's to glorify Him. It's essential that we have predestination, because if we don't have predestination, based upon the flow of this passage, we don't have the promise of Romans 8.28. Then He gives us a third link in the chain, and that's called, we see it in verse 30, and those whom He predestined, He also called. 
And as I mentioned, there's at least two different ways the Bible uses called. It uses general calling where we call people to believe in Jesus. Some do, some don't. There's also what is called the effective call, the, the call not the one we give, but the call that the Holy Spirit gives that's internal, that always works. And based upon the flow of this context, this is the effective call or the effectual call, to use an older word. It always works because those who are called are the same ones that are those who are predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Not only that, we move on to the very end, they're also the ones who are glorified. And so this calling here is not iffy. This is a sure calling. This is not a may or may not uh, get saved calling. This is the effective call of the Holy Spirit. And more could be said about this. We won't get into it today. But this is directly linked and connected with what we call the new birth. This is directly linked and connected with John chapter 3 as far as uh, being born again. Well, that happens because of the calling work of the Holy Spirit of God. And now we move on to number 4. We'll do 4 and 5 today. And we'll wrap this up today. And then I can't wait for the next section because it's just this high intense, full-throttle, steroidal praise is what it is. And that's how we should be responding to this. So that'll be interesting, I'm sure. I'll have to somehow, you know, get fired up for that. I don't know how. (laughs) And hopefully you will too. But let's look at the fourth and fifth link in this unbreakable chain. And I'll try to keep reminding you, but this is really what provides the foundation for 828. You want to know how 828 can be true and good and right? It's because God is sovereign in showing His grace. And what God starts, He finishes. And He is working everything according to His perfect plan. It should cause you to want to worship Him. It should cause you to worship Him should cause you to be encouraged amidst the suffering and amidst knowing the fact that you're going to breathe your last breath. This is the kind of God we're talking about. The God who, number four, justified. Look with me, if you would, at verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Now, we've learned a lot about justification in Romans because in one sense, the whole book has been about this. So I don't want to regurgitate going through all that we've learned in Romans so far, but it's this important to stop. It's important enough for us to say, all right, what is that? Well, in chapter 1, he started talking about it, and then he's been talking about it ever since. When God justifies people, it means He declares them righteous. He declares them perfect. We might say He saves them. It's perhaps my favorite thing in all of the world. The reality that God declares sinners righteous based upon the work of His Son, Jesus, it doesn't get any better than this. Now, what we learned in Romans, and we'll look at some sample passages, but what we learned, I can summarize in three statements. Three statements that have become historic statements. Christians before us crafted these statements. They thought them through. They wanted to be right in the way they said these things. So I'll try to do my best to just regurgitate these. What we've learned about justification in Romans so far is we're justified by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone or because of the finished work of Christ alone. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is in His finished work. 
let me comment on those three summary points before we look at them in Scripture and see them all over the place in Romans. When, when people say, we believe in justification by grace alone, that is to say, it's not merited, it's not earned. Or put another way, it's not deserved. Justification is not deserved. No one here deserves to be declared righteous based upon the work of Christ. And we learned that clearly in Romans because we actually deserve to pay for our own sins. That's what we deserve, and yet we're justified through faith in Christ. And So it's got to be by grace and only by grace. There's nothing we do to, to, to somehow merit it. When we say, through faith alone... It's emphasizing grace again because if it's through faith, it's still nothing we do. The Bible does not put faith as a work. Faith is not meritorious. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 actually has faith and works in two different zip codes. Okay? Your faith, your believing in Christ is not a work. Because faith and works are separate in Ephesians chapter 2. Yes, you do need to believe in Christ. But it's not a work. It's something you do, but it's not something you, you, you uh, do meritoriously. And Bible teachers have struggled with this one because how do you make this clear? Because we do have to believe, and yet it's not a work that we do. And so every analogy breaks down, but a lot of Bible teachers have said faith is the, the open hand by which we receive justification. Or the empty hand, I should say, not open hand. It's the empty hand. Because in a sense, it's nothing. We're just the recipients. That's not bad, provided we understand what we talked about last week. And that's the very fact that our hands are open is because of the grace of God. Right? Remember Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5? We were dead in trespasses and sins. We, we, we need the divine calling to actually get our hands open. But it's not something that we merit God's favor with or it wouldn't be grace. How do I receive the work of Christ and have it applied to my life? How is it appropriated to use a big word? How is it personalized? The Bible teaches over and over again it's by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith and not by works. Faith is the same Greek word for belief. The same idea of trust, dependence. You can't do it, so you're, 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 you're leaning on Him to do it for you. Can't be emphasized enough, because then He gets all of the glory. And then it's because of the work of Christ alone. It's because of the work of Christ alone. Now let's, let's see this. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me, if you would. Look at Romans chapter 3. We're looking at the big chain, God's unbreakable chain, but we're focusing on justification because we need to see how critical it is that God justifies and it's part of a bigger plan and that's how we can have confidence that everything's working together. Well, let's just sample this. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24 with me if you would. Romans 3, 24 says, And uh, we are justified by His grace as a gift... That's a redundancy just to make sure we see that it, there's nothing we do to earn this justification through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there we have grace alone because of the work of Christ alone. Then verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation or an atonement or a satisfaction by His blood. So it's His work to be received 
by faith. Even that wording is, is somewhat passive. It's received by faith. Now, we could stop there, and you, you get it all right there. But he's going to just drive it home even further because we've got to get this. Next sentence. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he, has, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just, same word for righteous, by the way, and the justifier, the, declare, the one who declares righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Then 28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He's just making it clear in our minds. It's not what you do that gets you justified. And some have been critical and said, Well, you say it's faith alone. And it doesn't say faith alone there. Well, that's just shorthand for what it does say, right? At the end of 28. Justified by faith, apart from works of the law. How do you summarize that? You say faith alone, it's apart from works. So we've got to have that in our mind. Then we can move on to chapter 4. He does the same thing in chapter 4. It's all about justification by faith alone. Romans 4, 5, just as a sampling says, And to the one who does not work but trusts, synonym for faith, him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or declared as righteousness. See, we're not actually righteous, but because of Christ's righteousness, it's counted to us as righteousness, and then we're ready to meet God and be in a right relationship with Him. And that's just a sampling. I want you to think deep about this because it's such an important issue because it's a gospel issue. In fact, in Galatians, the whole debate in Galatians is, is it by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone, or is it by grace through faith in Christ plus? And Galatians says the difference between the two is the difference between being accepted by God and being damned by God. Just because of the idea of the little word alone. Read Galatians 1.8. Read Galatians 1.9. Read the whole book of Galatians. So this is really critical that we understand this. So, so far we've learned that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I might add, you know what? Justification is probably even better than you realize. It's, it's, it's better than forgiveness. I'm not saying forgiveness isn't important. You have to be forgiven of your sin or you'll never ever be in the presence of God. But justification is not just God forgiving you. It's Him declaring you righteous. That's better than just being forgiven. Not downplaying forgiveness, but it's more than forgiveness. How about standing before God and, and He forgives you, you're still lacking righteousness. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary, atoning death, rose again from the dead so that we could believe in Him and be justified, declared righteous. It's better than forgiveness even. Not only that, I hate to step on toes, but this does not mean God treats us just as if we never sinned. I mentioned this when we were back in these texts, but I'll mention it again. Please don't say justification is where God treats us just as if we never sinned. It's cute, I know. Don't say that. Because if you are just as if you never sinned, again, you're at zero. And you're not ready to meet God. 
Justification is this declarative act. It's a, borrowed from the world of the law. You're declared righteous. So you don't have a zero bank account, spiritually speaking. It's not in the negative. There's been forgiveness, right? But it's not now zero in your bank account spiritually. You actually are declared righteous. You are wealthy with all of the wealth of Christ. And so justification is just awesome. It is an awesome, awesome reality that we're learning about in Romans. And here we're learning justification was part of the plan. It was part of God's sure plan. How amazing is this God? Justification is the grand, grand reality that God declares sinners righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. That's what we've seen so far. But then when we get to Romans 8, 30... It just complements what we've learned so far. It complements that it's only by grace because notice what it says in Romans 8.30. He, who's it talking about? God. He, God, also justified. We don't justify ourselves. God justified. God justified. That tells us, even though it doesn't use the word, it complements earlier Romans, it's only by grace. God does this. God absolutely does this. We don't justify ourselves. We don't cooperate with God in order to be justified. It says right there, He also justified. And by the way, that means it's all of grace. And that means that we praise God because He and He alone justified. So it's all worship toward Him. It also tells us that this justification, and this is new, can't be lost. Look what it says at the end of verse 30. He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. We're going to get to what that means, but just as a preview, that's talking about the end of the end of the end of the end when we are fully and completely perfected. So those who have been justified most surely, irrevocably, most certainly will be glorified to the point where He says it in the past tense. You can't lose your justification. If you've been justified, you can't be unjustified. This is important because this ends up separating many, many, many pseudo-Christian religions from biblical Christianity. Because many religions say, oh yes, you can be justified by believing in Jesus, but you might lose your justification. Well, that's not what this passage says. This is such an encouragement to us. God and God alone irrevocably justifies based upon the work of His Son. That means He gets the glory. That means we should be able to see the difference between Christianity and pseudo-Christianity as well. Think about this. This was, just, this was just helpful for me to write down and think about myself as I was trying to meditate on this and trying to think about just how weighty and significant this, this whole thing is. My note as I wrote this down was this. The justifying work of Christ is for those who are the called who are the predestined, who are the foreknown, who are the glorified. You just, I just was mixing some of the words around. Because where there is one, doesn't matter what order even, there are the other four. Now they're in this order on purpose. But just to get myself off of comfort level, you just think where there is one of these things, the other four are there. What an amazing God. It's as if this kind of God could indeed cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him and for those who have been called according to His purpose. 
And he can. And he does. That's the point. And we should praise him. It's no wonder that Martin Luther, who, by the way, is not our authority and who is not perfect, he was a big sinner, as he would call himself. This is why Martin Luther said that historic statement, it's upon justification through faith alone that the church stands or falls. This reality, and that was his shorthand for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that the church either stands or the church falls. Let me ask you, let's theologize a little bit and, and, and talk about why he would why, would, why would he say that? Why would this be a litmus? Why would this be maybe the litmus for whether or not we have a standing or falling church? And I think, since I've had a little more time to think about it, but you don't need much time to think about it, I think the right answer would be because that issue determines whether or not you believe Christ's righteousness was enough. If you believe that Christ's righteousness is perfect and sufficient and complete and nothing more must be done or needs to be done, what else is there to do other than to believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone? Nothing you do. But if you believe it's justification by grace, through faith, and and Christ didn't do enough. He didn't do enough. And we know that that's not true. We have the book of the Hebrews in our Bibles. We have the book of Romans in our Bibles. We have our Bibles. You see, when we forget... The birth narrative, how about? Let's just go back to the beginning of Matthew 1. When we forget Matthew one twenty one, which says, He came to save His people from their sins. When we forget that, we are a falling church. He came to save. He didn't come to help us get saved. He didn't come to give us an example so if we follow Him, then we can save ourselves. He was so much more than an example. He, he, he came to save His people from their sins. We have to remember that. Well, we definitely got off the beaten path talking about justification. But bringing us back to the text that we're in, those whom He foreknew or foreloved would be the synonym. He also predestined. He also called he also justified. You know that great doctrine we've been learning about in Romans is spoken of in the past tense, done, finished, and it's connected to those who before time ever began had the affection of God set upon them and foreknowing them. Good, huh? This doesn't get any better than that. And that is how we can have confidence that Romans 8.28 is true because we're talking about that kind of God that kind of God who does that kind of, of amazing thing. Because think about it, by the way, if you can lose your justification, 
or if justification is somehow based upon Christ and you, Romans 8.28 isn't true. It's not true. It's all of Him. It's all of Him. I think I mentioned this last week or the week before. You know, in one sense, it's an absolute crime that we, we don't just come to church and read all of Romans. You know, I mean, this is just totally, in one sense, lame. We're doing this way because you get all excited about it. You know, that's built into Romans, right? So just by way of preview now and then, I've got to say, remember where we're going to get to in chapter 12, verse 1, after he's told us all this great stuff about Christ. He's going to say, he's going to say, therefore, right? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's saying Romans 1 to 11, the mercies of God. That's what I talked about. To present your bodies, all of you, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know, you learn about how great this stuff is in Romans chapter 8, and then we're going to get 9 and 10 and 11, and by then it's just like, you know? That was my voice for explosion. (laughs) You know, you just can't contain it anymore. So we need to look ahead sometimes. This is all meant to, to... boil up within us worship to this great God that has done these great things. We can trust Him. We can worship Him. Now let's look at number five. The fifth link in God's unbreakable chain of sovereign grace comes at the very end of verse 30 where it says, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. At the risk of oversimplification, I would like to suggest a synonym. Can't be used every time glorified is used in the Bible, but here I think it can can do integrity with the text. A good synonym here to help us understand an otherwise religious word is perfected. It's talking about perfection. At least certainly here it is. It's talking about final destination. I love it that it says glorified. Duh. Right? It's done. But we haven't reached our final destination. That's how he says it because that's the kind of God we're talking about who can cause all things to work together for good. Let me put it this way. For us to be glorified is for us to be restored to that place where we fully and truly reflect the image of God the way we were designed. Final, ultimate, end of all, end destination for you as a saved person. That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's getting at here. And and, and what happens sometimes is we don't remember that. Here's what we do. I do this. I'm guilty of this. I think glorified. Oh, isn't that great? That means heaven. And I think heaven's great. Don't misunderstand. I don't think that's what he's talking about. It's better than heaven. You say, what are you talking about? It's better than heaven. Here's the reality. When you die and breathe your last breath, you will be immediately in the presence of God. The Apostle Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In uh, Philippians, he says, he's debating on whether or not he's going to stay or go. Is he going to keep his life? Is he going to lose his life? He says in, in Philippians that 
It's better to depart and be with Christ. Philippians 1.23 And so he would immediately be in the presence of God. You know the account of the thief on the cross, the repentant thief. Jesus says what? Today you will be with me in where? In paradise. When you die, you're in the presence of God and I'll never suggest to you that's not a good thing. (laughs) Paul says that's a better thing than staying here. It's not what Romans 8.30 is saying when it says glorified. Think with me about this. God's final ultimate destination for you if He's going to fully restore you so that you are the person you were designed to be as a member of the human race pre-fall means you have a body. God didn't just make us as spirits. God made us as spirits, yes. God made us also as individuals who have bodies. Glorification is when you are fully restored and you have a new body as well. That includes you getting to heaven, so don't misunderstand. But don't stop there. Don't stop there for a second. And when we start looking at other passages, we see, yes, indeed, this is true. When do we get our glorified bodies? We don't breathe our last breath. I'll use my mom as an example because she went to heaven in 2005, in June. She didn't see God as she breathed her last breath and then instantly get her glorified body. She wasn't suffering anymore with her cancer-filled body. But she was in the presence of God instantly, yes, that's biblical, but the Bible doesn't teach she was glorified in the full sense of having her body. That is tied to the return of Christ. It's tied to the return of Christ. We get our glorified bodies, and that's full completion. She's going to get it, and I don't think she's complaining right now enjoying the presence of God, but ultimate fulfillment comes at glorification. Maybe a couple of passages would be helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 John chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Bible teaches that our new bodies, our glorified bodies that we receive, we receive when Christ returns and this is true for people who are still alive. This is people who are already in heaven and return with Him. And you say, why are you making a big deal out of this? I'm just making a big deal out of it because I think sometimes we short-sell glorification. It's even better than we thought. It includes a new body. Is what it does. But as sure as Christ will return, we'll get them. 1 Corinthians 15.42 talks about the resurrection of the dead. It's in context of the return of Christ. He's got a full argument going on here. We're just kind of jumping in the middle of it. But it says in verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It's talking about the body. It is raised in glory. Resurrection. Resurrected body raised in glory. So that helps us a little bit at least. And then toward the end of 44, if there is a natural body, there will also be a spiritual body. That kind of helps us, the raised in glory phrase. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 helps us even more. And I reference this all the time I have in this series, but I haven't even paid that close attention to it, to be honest with you. To highlight, it's tied to the return of Christ, which is when we get our resurrected bodies. First 
John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. No doubt He's talking about glorification. There's really not any debate about what He's talking about there. That's when that will occur. You can jot down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. You know, the debate going on at the Thessalonian church is, you know, what about people that we love who are brothers and sisters in Christ and they died? Are they going to get cheated? Are they going to miss out? They're not going to get a glorified body? How does all of that work? I don't really know how that works. And there's going to be debate and confusion about that amongst them. And Paul says, no, let me set the record straight. In essence, everybody's going to get theirs. They're not going to get cheated. But it's tied to the return of Christ. Listen to what it says. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, still left, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Everybody's going to get a glorified body. When do we get a glorified body? We get a glorified body with Christ's return. You say, why is all this so important? I think it's important to see that as, how about this for starters, as sure as Jesus Christ is going to return, we're going to get new bodies. Glorified bodies. Now, I'm not glorified now. When I got out of bed this morning and took one step, I didn't feel like I had a glorified body. And then I turned the lights on in the bathroom and I knew I didn't have a glorified body. But because of God's unbreakable saving chain, I can have great confidence that I will have a new body someday that is perfect. And you say, well, that's kind of self-serving. I thought it was only going to always be about God. You say it's, it's better than heaven. It's heaven and a new body. You know what? Even you getting a new body is all about God. He created man and woman in His image according to His likeness. And then sin came and the world was broken ever since. Even our bodies. So what God is going to do is He is going to bring full restoration so that He can be fully glorified the way He intended, and that is for us to, yes, be with Him and have our spirits with Him, enjoying Him. But you know what? It's a full deal. We are people. We are human beings and we're spirit and body both. So it's even better. It's even better than we might have thought typically. When you suffer... Think whom he foreknew, whom he foreloved. When you fear your future or for your future, think he also predestined. When you wonder how you could be saved or how you could have gotten saved, think he also called effectually. That's how he got saved. 
when you consider the greatness of your sin, think He also justified based upon the merits of Christ, not mine. And when you suffer physically, think He also glorified. It's going to be fixed. And it's going to honor Him. Romans 8.28 is awesome. And we need it in a major way because we live in this world. But Romans 8.28 is even awesomer (laughs) when you see really what's behind it and the kind of God that is behind Romans 8.28. And that's in 29 and 30. These are great, great truths for us. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for being the God who justifies and the God who glorifies, and the God who calls, and the God who predestines, and the God who foreknows. Our minds stagger when we contemplate You and the significance of who You are and what that means even on a practical basis. Your love for us is more than we can grasp. This causes us, no doubt, to have questions and and lots of questions at times. Lord, may the questions that we have help us to even see your greatness even more. That we would not be overwhelmed by the questions, but we would be overwhelmed by your greatness. And Lord, now as we are able to obey the Lord Jesus Christ by taking bread and taking wine and eating and drinking together, Lord, may we have it fixed in our minds that we're going to obey Him now because He earned our righteousness for us. He saved us. And now out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving, we want to respond with worship. Lord, may may no one here think that by eating and drinking we are somehow justifying ourselves. May everyone think that by eating and drinking we are responding to the God who justifies by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, ultimately for His glory alone. In Jesus' name.